0: Hello, this is Rick, and welcome back to this channel. The videos in this series have everything to do with helping people understand how historians do history, how our relationship to the past can help us if we treat history as the social science that it is, or hurt us if we follow Henry Ford's notorious dictum, History is Bunk. History, I would say, is an inert poison which is activated by the practice of not noticing that it is there, a practice which is hard work, really, but a widespread and dangerous practice to which Americans, I am afraid, have become addicted. The reason why all the videos focus on the JFK assassination is rather incidental to this purpose. It's simply that this is a classic example of Americans turning their backs on the facts and choosing to believe only what they want to believe, which is a hijacking of history that only activates the poison that I mentioned before. A few examples will suffice. In the last couple of weeks, there's been attention devoted to Enid, Oklahoma where there are many people who oppose mask mandates and have made their angst known by demanding that mask mandates be prohibited in that city. They have angrily filled town halls and school board meetings and have bundled together a number of grievances from masks to so-called critical race theory about which people don't seem to understand, but they're absolutely certain that they're opposed to it. The people attend these meetings dressed in red to signify their support for Make America Great Again, or at least for A World Without Masks. One of the organizers explains that she's opposed to critical race theory because she doesn't understand why her five-year-old child has to learn, in her words, that somebody a hundred years ago was mean to a minority child. So much for knowledge of history. And so what we see here is the use of history by people who don't know history. We see the abuse of history by people who usually think history is bunk, like Ford, but who see it as somehow valuable if it can be mobilized and instrumentalized to suit their own purposes. In other words, history is not a field to study to determine what really happened and how it affects us today, which is actually what history is supposed to be, but instead it's a weapon. It's a weapon to use, but only if you can configure it in such a way as to conform to your preconceived notions. And that, of course, is not history at all, but rather propaganda. And we've seen where propaganda could lead in the murderous authoritarian regimes of the 20th century. But that seems to be where we're headed, towards authoritarianism, because so many people do not seem to have an open mind to what history is trying to teach us. Another example of this is the struggle to hold on to Confederate monuments, which is a magnificent example of the trope that the Civil War can't possibly have been about slavery, or primarily about slavery. The facts are too inconvenient to address, but history is too tantalizing a weapon not to use and to distort for aims that are rather nefarious given the political divisions that exist today in our society. But the most common theme that we hear about these Confederate monuments is that they were monuments to a war that was about anything other than slavery. State rights, for example. Never mind that state rights was constantly used to enable the extension of slavery and to cover up the real purposes of opposition to federal legislation which was the protection of slavery never mind that all of the seceding states in 1861 when they explained the reasons for their acts of secession always mentioned slavery as the number one reason why secession was necessary never mind that all of the arguments leading up to the civil war from the Missouri Compromise of 1820 to the Compromise of 1850 to the Wilmot Proviso that tried to prevent slavery's expansion into the territories, to the furor over the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, the sensation that Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin had in 1854 and later, the Dred Scott decision, which basically involved the Supreme Court extending slavery into every inch and quarter of the United States, at least in theory legally. The John Brown Slave Rebellion in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, 1859. The Republican Party, which opposed the expansion of slavery into the territory, though not slavery itself. All of these things had nothing to do with any other issue primarily than slavery. And so it is quite an art form for Americans to pretend that this reality was not a reality. Don't pay attention to what you can see right in front of your faces, seems to be the argument. This also relates to a favorite line of mine from one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, And that is when Sherlock Holmes says he cannot make a judgment about the history of a case because he has no data yet. He says that while most people try to fit facts to suit theories, we must be careful that we fit theories to the facts. And that's what's going on here with Confederate monuments. People in support of those monuments have a pre-existing position on the Civil War really not based on a reading of the history of the Civil War, but perhaps based on family loyalties and family lore as they were growing up. And it is necessary for them to find the facts that support this theory and to ignore the mountain of evidence that refutes it. Such is not the practice of an honest historian, but it does seem to be the practice here in the monument's controversy. You can really tell that this kind of chicanery is at work when arguments are made that sprinkle facts throughout and fantasies at the same time and mix them together into what is conceived to be a potent whole, but one that is riven by the fantasies that try to hold it all together unsuccessfully. For example, we know that the monuments were built in the 1890s to support the southern state legislatures to drive African Americans from the polls, a practice that was totally successful and that lasted until the 1960s. So the celebration of white supremacy was the driver that led to the construction of these monuments, such as the Lee Monument in Richmond, Virginia, that has just been removed. So these monuments were always political, and whenever monuments are raised, they represent that generation's attempt to win support for their version of the past. Publicly speaking, this is what all monuments seek to do. So we have a choice. We can, of course, build our own monuments that reflect our own wish list with regard to history. That is not necessarily going to lead to the truth either, but it will, but it will follow in the footsteps of these monuments because all monuments are reflections of what people wish their history had been like. And some historians point out that history tells the truth and monuments lie. That is a bit of an exaggeration, but it is on the right track. The reason why monuments, generally speaking, reflect the history we wish we had is because the very act of monumentalizing something is a distortion since history is very, very complex. It's very rare that you have a simple major cause of something, like in the case of the Civil War, where slavery is bound up in everything. And that, to that extent, is relatively simple. Although when you analyze it further, you see that slavery is integrated into the economy, it's integrated into the education, into, into religion, which was the most segregated aspect of the South. And so, yes, slavery was the driving force behind the Civil War, but it's also bound up in all of the other subordinate causes that are intertwined with slavery. To that extent, it's somewhat complicated, but we always come back to slavery, which is quite unusual because it makes the Civil War fundamentally about one thing, Now, monuments to people who held slaves and who insisted that they wanted to go to war against the United States to save slavery present a challenge to people and presented a challenge to people in the 1890s. How do you memorialize somebody who fought to defend slavery? How do you build a monument to such a person and describe them as a hero? Well, in order to do that, you have to erase the past and present it as something other than what it actually was. And that is the purpose of these monuments. And so when people try to defend the monuments today, they are also trying to defend their pre-existing position on the Civil War, which they've had in many cases since they were children. Again, family lore was a major part of the reason they have this assemblage of ideas about the Civil War that bear little resemblance to the reality of the war. And you can tell that they are lacking in knowledge of the war when they invoke things like economic differences between the North and South, the struggle over the territories, states' rights, and so on, without acknowledging that these things were covers for slavery. They were instruments for protecting the South's ability to hold slaves and continue to hold slaves in the future by expanding them into the territories. Yes, state rights was something the South talked a lot about, but they also talked a lot about slavery, and of course state rights was the instrument for protecting slavery. Sometimes this bundle of arguments contains individual examples which are actually factual, but they are also surrounded by arguments that are fanciful. For example, it's often said that the North did not fight the Civil War to end slavery, and that is true insofar as the beginning of the war is concerned. Lincoln was not interested in destroying slavery where it already existed, He regarded himself as bound by the Constitution, which protected slavery where it already existed. And he was simply opposed to the expansion of slavery where it did not yet exist, that is, in the territories. And Lincoln would have been willing to preserve slavery in some respect. In fact, he tried to do that with the Emancipation Proclamation because the Emancipation Proclamation offered the South a way out, if they stopped fighting the Civil War in 1862 before January 1st, they would be allowed to keep their slaves in perpetuity, but they would have to rejoin the Union. So there's no question. It is true that Lincoln and the North began the Civil War in order to save the Union and not to destroy slavery. But it is equally true that as the war ground on, as time passed during the war, northern war aims changed. When the South did not rejoin the Union in 1862, even with the Emancipation Proclamation as a dangling carrot, the war became a war not only to save the Union, but to free the slaves, because Lincoln and the North were committed to this after January the 1st, 1863. This led to the enlistment of African Americans as soldiers, and from that point on, the tens of thousands of African American soldiers guaranteed that the war would not end without the elimination of slavery, and that it was at that point that ending slavery became a root component of the war. And so it is very misleading to say that the war was not fought for slavery's elimination. It is true it didn't begin that way, but it's also true that beginning on January 1st, 1863, the war became just such a war. Sometimes people talk about the election of 1860 as a trigger for the war because Lincoln was elected and that this was some kind of a radical action by the North. Well, it is true, again, that not a single Southern electoral vote was cast for Abraham Lincoln. However, that is not what the Constitution says is a requirement for someone to be elected president. In order to be elected president, a candidate must have a majority of the electoral votes and in part because the Southerners were voting for three different candidates. They divided their vote, and the North, which had a majority of population, and that, of course, figures into the count of the Electoral College, had a majority of electoral votes that elected Lincoln legitimately as president in 1860. There was nothing radical about that, and yet this is often used as another example of how The Civil War was the war of northern aggression, as some people say it. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so what we see with these examples, the example of Enid, Oklahoma, the example of the struggle to hold on to Confederate monuments, is the abuse of history that we often see. I mentioned the Oklahoma example because the example I gave, the argument that we should not teach our children about racial discrimination in the past because we don't want our five-year-olds to feel bad that someone was mean to someone a hundred years ago, is such a classic example of how people use history as a weapon and dismiss it at the same time. When we talk about lynching in the 19th century, or we talk about Jim Crow, when we talk about disfranchisement of millions of people just because of the color of their skin, all of which set the backdrop for the building of these Confederate monuments, we're not talking about someone being mean to somebody a 100 years ago or 150 years ago. We're talking about murder on a mass scale and a denial of the basic fundamentals of American republicanism after a war in which 600,000 Americans fought to save the Constitution. And the legacy of Jim Crow, the legacy of lynching, is a continuing racism that roils this country day in and day out. It's not something that ended with the civil rights movement of the 1960s, It didn't end in the 1980s when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was made into a national holiday. It did not end with the election of the first black president in U.S. history. In fact, some of these things, especially the election of Barack Obama, seems to have stirred the pot of latent racism in the United States, which never went away but was always sitting back, lurking, ready to rise up again. And so when I roll out my videos about the JFK assassination, it's done in an attempt to explain how we are to interpret historical documents, how we must guard against the urge to fit a pre-existing theory rather than to find out what really happened and why. In our next video, we're going to look at a particular memorandum that was sent to the new president, Johnson's press secretary, Bill Moyers, on November 25, 1963, which has become an exhibit in the conspiracist's argument that there was a conspiracy and a cover-up of the conspiracy from the very get-go after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We want to look at this memo because when we look at it fairly, We see that it is nothing of the kind. It's the kind of memorandum you would expect federal officials to write in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. But we will also look at how this memorandum has been distorted by the same kind of mobilized historicism that transforms history from a social science into a base club of propaganda. Watch for that video soon.